0: Four, one of the best deals in town. Swing by Walters for brunch. For just $20, you can add bottomless Bloody Marys, mimosas, trulies, and Bud Lights with a purchase of an entree. On Saturday, Euro matches of Wales, Denmark, and Italy, Austria. Saturday night, Walters is showing the Tank Davis-Mario Barrios pay-per-view fight. Sunday, the round of 16 in the Euros gets going. Make your reservation for a busy weekend at waltersdc.com slash reservation.
1: When you do come to Walters, make sure to check out their spicy chicken. Cold beer, a great sandwich with fries, and a big screen TV is a tough combo to beat. We're driven
2: by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And now the 3-1 swung on hit of the year to deep left. Schwarber's back, warring track at the wall. He lunges, can't get it. It's over and out for a home run. Miguel Rojas' fourth home run of the year, and it's a rough start for Lester. Marlins four, the Nationals nothing. He deals a 1-1, swinging a shot through Miller back
0: up the middle into center field for a hit. Rojas scores. Sanchez gets the late stop sign. Gomes has it in front of the plate. And it's now 7-2 Miami. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, June 26, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, the Nationals weren't going to win forever. And here's something that perhaps makes it feel better off a horrendous performance on Friday night. This 11-2 loss at the Miami Marlins is the Nationals' first loss in a game that went at least nine innings since June 11th. This loss on Friday night happened on June 25th. It had been two weeks since the Nats had lost a game that went at least nine innings. So I feel like that is a pretty cool thing to be able to cite. But no doubt, what we all saw on Friday night was not pretty. Game two of a four-game series. Nationals five-game winning streak over. Nats now back below 500 at 36 and 37. Mark, a thing of beauty that game was not.
1: It was not Al. Now, I mean, you know, I think you can say, hey, these are going to happen over the course of the season. There's going to be some of these and you're not going to win every single one. Like you said, they hadn't lost a nine inning game in two weeks. So you can brush this one off if if they come back on Saturday and play well. And if if John Lester comes back five days from now and pitches a lot better than he did in this one. That's the concern. You can't let this spiral into something else for the team. And you certainly can't get any more of this kind of stuff out of Lester, who in his previous start was great. His best start of the season against the Mets. And he came out in this one and probably his worst start of the season. So that's a little bit troubling. So free pass on this one. But that was your mulligan. You don't get to do this again.
0: Yeah, so obviously the question with the recent national surge has been, is this a momentary surge in an otherwise forgettable season, or is this a turnaround? You know, the big picture question to me with the Nats this season has been, is this a good team off to a bad start, or is this just a bad team? And a loss like Friday night's makes you say to yourself, hmm, well, I guess it is possible that this still is just a bad team. Understand, this loss to the Marlins at the Marlins on Friday night just put the Nats. You know, it's just four games behind the National League East-leading Mets. Mets split their doubleheader with Philadelphia on Friday, but the Nats, even though they're second in the division, are back to having the worst run differential in the division at minus fifteen. There are still things with this Nats team that bother you that make you say to yourself, "I don't know. Are they good? Are they not good?" We certainly know they can play well. They've been playing very well lately, but there are still things about them that are troubling. And to your point about John Lester, juggling John Lester. You know, it's a dangerous way to make a living when you're constantly putting guys on base. And there's such a fine line, is there not, between the crafty veteran who knows how to escape innings unscathed versus the veteran who shot and gets tattooed. And John Lester on Friday night got tattooed seven runs in two and a third innings. You talk about not having it. He did not have it in this game. And this happened against a team of the Marlins who, as we've discussed, are really bad offensively. So, you know, it's one thing if this happens against the Dodgers or the Padres. You got worked by the Marlins on Friday night. Lester giving up five hits, a homer, two doubles, three singles. He issued three walks. He threw just 35 strikes versus 29 balls. I know the bullpen is shot and that, you know, you have to get uh, mileage out of your starters. I have to say, though, Mark, watching this game, I'm seeing it myself. Lester doesn't have it. It's not going to all of a sudden come to him in this game. You do have Jeffrey Rodriguez, who hasn't pitched in like a month and a half. Why didn't David just go to Rodriguez as soon as it was clear that Lester just wasn't going to be any good in this game?
1: Yeah, I was kind of wondering that. And even when he did finally pull him, uh, I understood going to uh, Justin Miller to get out of that third inning because the pitcher spot was coming up. So you just need a, a standard reliever for that inning. And then you're going to go to your long man. And I was actually surprised that it was Paolo Espino first before they finally got to Jeffrey Rodriguez later. Now, I mean, They were both going to probably pitch before the game was over. So maybe it didn't really matter. And I think that was a sign of Davey saying, hey, this game might still be within reach. Let's go to our more experienced guy that maybe I trust a little more early. And then if the game gets totally out of hand, we go to Jeffrey later. But, you know, to your question about pulling Lester earlier, I get it. The first inning was awful. And he said, you know, three batters in, he realized this was going to be a bad night for him. But then the second inning, he retires aside pretty quickly on eight pitches. So he needed 33 to get through the first and then only eight to get through the second. So you're saying, all right, maybe there's a chance of something here. And then the third inning, it all falls apart. So you could have pulled him, you know, a couple of batters earlier, but I don't know how much difference that really was going to make. And we got to remind ourselves, big picture here, they're in this stretch of 20 games in 20 days. The bullpen was actually fairly fresh for this one. That wasn't necessarily a concern today. But you do want to look ahead to the next one and the one after that, and you want to make sure you have as many arms as possible. So I understood why he tried to push him, even though it felt like it was a hopeless cause at that point.
0: Completely disrespectful to put Paolo Espino into that game <laughs> as a pseudo mop-up man, okay? Paulo has graduated beyond mop-up man status, especially with Rodriguez having not pitched in, what, what was it, 13 days? Like literally almost two weeks. That, I mean, that's nuts. That's almost you've wasted a roster spot for that long, having this guy on the team and not pitching. But when he puts Espino in the game, I'm like, I thought we were past this. He's Paolo Espino. He's a secret weapon. And now he's right back to pitching in mop-up duty. But anyway, it it was rough with Lester. You know, I I do wonder about this. And look, I don't know that this would have made any difference. But the one-out three-run homer by Miguel Rojas in that four-run bottom of the first just barely got by the glove of a leaping Kyle Schwerber. We've talked about how when Lester pitches, Schwerber does great things. And there he was again, and not just with the glove. And Schwerber did commit an error in the game. That's true. But man, if if Schwerber can make that catch, you do wonder if maybe the whole tone of the game changed. But it's not like Lester was any good after that. So maybe it would not have made any difference.
1: No, but so this is funny. Remember yesterday when we were previewing this game and I said, okay, if ever there's a matchup where if you're John Lester, just go right after him, you know? Yeah, In that ballpark against that lineup, you're not going to get beat with the home run. And I was this close to tweeting it after the back-to-back walks in the first inning and to say, John Lester, don't walk batters, like make them beat you. And then before I could even tweet it, he gives up the home run. So it turned out that the long ball did hurt him in this one. and, And, you know, but still barely got out, like you said. So maybe it could have been something else. To me, the walks are the real thing in this game. There was just no reason for him to be fiddling around the outskirts of the strike zone in this game not against that lineup he knew it he he knew that was the problem he's falling behind everybody and it just set a bad tone for the whole game and John Lester to be effective at this stage of his career has to have better command has to get ahead in the count and get outs on weak contact we know he's not striking batters out well you can't fall behind I don't care who you are you can't be fall behind these hitters 2031 and expect to survive and we certainly saw that in this game
0: we were throwing bouquets at Lester off what he did in his last start, and justifiably so. He allows two runs in six innings, six strikeouts versus no walks in that 6-2-7 inning win over the Mets at Nationals Park last Saturday evening in Game 2 of the doubleheader. But here's the reality now with John Lester this season. He's made 11 starts. He has an ERA of 499. Okay, The ERA is right at 5 and is WHIP for the season now. Is at 153, worse than his whip in each of the previous two seasons. And the reason that matters is he was really bad the last two seasons with the Chicago Cubs. His whip for this season now is actually worse than it was in either of those two seasons. And you just made mention of the walks. The walks are killing Lester this season. His walk rate on the year is walks per nine innings now, 3.44. I mean, it's very hard to win that way. It's very hard to prevent runs that way. And yet, that's where Lester is at. So, you know this is going to happen with him. It's not like anyone was expecting a Cy Young-caliber season from Lester, but what you have to avoid are the blow-up starts. I don't know. Had he had a blow-up start yet? I'm not sure that he really had. He would had some bad outings, but this is the first true clunker, like the first one where you're just like, man, you got no shot in this game. That's what needs to be avoided going forward. You can't have him when he starts giving you no chance. It can't become like a Matt Harvey situation, even though Harvey was actually okay on Friday night. <laughs> but that's what you need to avoid with Lester, and hopefully this is not a sign that war of this type of outing is coming.
1: Yeah, I feel like his worst outings had been more a case of the pitch count getting way up and yeah. you know, having to come out of the game in the, in the fourth inning, but having only given up a handful of runs. So he gave up five and five and a third to the Cubs, six and four innings to the Orioles, but yeah, this one was different than that. And you mentioned the ERA now at 499. Well, remember, Six days ago, I mentioned he walked off the mound at the end of the sixth inning of that game, and I thought he was done, because why would you put him back out there for the seventh? And the ERA was 3.60, and now, after only officially two and a third innings later, okay, it was actually over the course of four separate innings that he pitched, his ERA is up to 4.99. You can't let that happen. You just cannot do that. And there's a stretch there of batters, if you start with the seventh inning in the previous start... Until he came out of this game, and he threw, and sorry, I'm trying to look it up here. I'm really on my game, and I'm on my game as much as John Lester was on his. He's allowed 11 of the last 18 batters to reach, (laughs) giving up nine runs, six hits, and four walks. So you got to avoid that kind of stuff. You have to find a way to minimize the damage, and the best way to do it is throw the ball over the plate, you know? I know his stuff isn't as good as it used to be, but force them to beat you. Don't help them out.
0: Yeah. And the Nationals could do a better job of catching the baseball. Defense is kind of, uh, I don't want to say fallen off, but it's not been stellar lately. Trey Turner has an error each of the last two games. Kyle Schwarber had his error on Friday night. But Lester was the problem. Let's make that clear. So... The Nats end up having to use the bullpen quite a bit in this 11-2 loss at the Marlins on Friday night. Four Nationals relievers combined to allow four runs, three earned, in five and two-thirds innings. It was clearly the JV that was out there, Justin Miller, Paolo Espino, although at this point he to me is varsity plus. But Miller, Espino, <laughs> Sam Clay, and Jeffrey Rodriguez. What was interesting to me, and I don't blame Davey for doing this, but certainly don't see this often, Davey pinch hitting for Justin Miller in the top of the fourth with Joe Ross, who ended up striking out on three pitches. So it didn't come off like a stroke of brilliance. But what do you think about that? Like, it's one thing to use a good hitting pitcher as a pinch hitter later in a game. Davey deploys his good hitting pitcher as a pinch hitter early in this game.
1: So two things that stood out to me about that. First was that I thought that meant that Josh Bell was not available at all. Now, it turns out he was available and he was going to pinch hit at the very end of the game if one more batter got to the plate because the MRI came back clean and he's actually going to be in the lineup on Saturday. So that's some good news at the end of a, a otherwise awful night for the team. Now, maybe, and I don't know this for sure, maybe they didn't know that at the time. Maybe he was still in the cage, like working on it. Maybe they were still waiting for the official results to come in. So, but that was number one that I figured, okay, Bell's not available. They've got a short bench. Just go ahead and put Joe Ross up there. But number two, and this speaks to a point, you mentioned the fact that Jeffrey Rodriguez just spent the last 13 days on the roster without pitching. Why have they needed nine relievers this whole time? I got it for a couple of days there when things were getting out of control and they had double headers and no off days. We've gotten to a point here where things have evened out and they've been playing with one less bench player. And I do not understand why that was the case. I think they very easily could have sent Rodriguez back down some point in the last week, brought up another hitter. Yadiel Hernandez is available to come back or Luis Garcia, whoever. Get another player because you never know who you might need off a bench or how many times you might need it. And maybe you don't have to pinch hit Joe Ross in the fourth inning of a a game like this if you have a full bench and they didn't have that in this game.
0: Yeah, that is odd. When a guy is on your roster, And he doesn't play for more than a week, let alone nearly two weeks. That's a problem, and that's a screw-up. And at least internally, the Nats need to examine that of what went wrong here. Why did that happen? How did that happen? Because, look, Joe Ross, he may be a good hitting pitcher, but he's still a pitcher. It's like saying, well, you know, he's the nicest guy in prison. Like, all right, what does that mean exactly? You're a good hitting pitcher. You're still a pitcher. You're not a good hitter. Like, you're much better off with a Yadiel Hernandez pinch-hitting in that spot. But that was odd to see. Davey go to Ross as a pinch-hitter in that fourth inning. Hey guys, Al Galdi here to tell you about FanDuel. It's great to be in the midst of baseball season. Nothing like watching a game. Great weather, cold drink, and a little action on FanDuel Sportsbook. If you have never bet on baseball before, now is the perfect time to give that a shot. FanDuel is letting new users swing for the fences risk-free as you'll get up to $1,000 back for an even bigger win all season long. There's a reason that FanDuel Sportsbook is America's number one sportsbook. The app is simple to use. It's got great odds on all different betting markets, unique fun bet types like same game parlay and always on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And when you win, FanDuel will pay you your winnings in as little as 24 hours. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code chat to get in on the action. That's FanDuel Sportsbook. Promo code chat. Well, in betting, we have what's called the happiness hedge. That's when you place your money against your rooting interest. So you're guaranteed to be happy for some reason. Games on Saturday afternoon include Philadelphia at the Mets at 410. Starting for the Mets, the best pitcher on the planet, Jacob deGrom. He has an ERA of 0.50. So yes, as a Nationals fan, you're rooting against the Mets. But also, yes, if you're playing this game, you're putting your money on the Mets.
2: 21 plus in present, Colorado, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, or West Virginia. First on my real money wager only for risk free bet. Refund issued as is non withdrawable site. Credit that expires in seven days. Restrictions apply. See terms at com. Gambling problem, call 1 100 522 in Colorado. 1 100 bets off in Iowa. 109 with it Indiana 1027077117 for confidential help in Michigan, 100 gambler, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Virginia, Tennessee, 1-800-889-9789. or in West Virginia, visit www100 gamblernet We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. Swinging a long drive to right. Schwarber's got another one.
0: That one in the second deck, about seven rows deep, and long gone. Home run number 22 for Kyle Schwarber. Well, Nationals' offense overall on Friday night was not good. This was like right back to the way things were before the Nats started winning. Nats scoring just two runs, just eight hits, seven of which were singles. Drew just two walks, went one of five. With runners in scoring position, struck out 11 times. Underwhelming night for Juan Soto, 0-3 with a walk. Rough night for Jan Gomes, 0-3 with a walk. Two strikeouts, left three men on base. Really bad game for Victor Robles, 0-4 with a strikeout, left four men on base. But... Kyle Schwarber homered again. The sun rises in the east, and Kyle Schwarber hits home runs. That's the way things are right now. He doesn't not homer anymore. All he does is hit homers. He hits another one in this game on Friday night. Actually, has two other hits too. He had a homer and two singles, went three for four, but a leadoff homer in a Nationals two-run third on a bomb to the second deck in right field. The home run going a projected 420 feet for Statcast. Thirteenth homer in 14 games for Schwarber, and he ties Bryce Harper's record for the most home runs by a Nationals player in a month at 13. Harper did that in May of 2015. Schwarber now has done that in June 2021. The run continues. This is unbelievable.
1: 13 and 14 games, and that's only one shy of Barry Bonds' all-time record in 2001. Nine homers in six games, and that's only one shy of Frank Howard's record From 1968, I had forgotten that he did that in the year of the pitcher. Frank Howard hit 10 homers in six games and a lot of those games at RFK Stadium where, as at least we remember from the Nationals time there, that was not an easy place to hit the ball out. So it's crazy what he's done. I don't know that I've ever seen anything quite like this and it's completely changed the perception of his season. You know, he was hitting like 218 when this started. He's now hitting 253. He was briefly tied for the National League lead in home runs. He's got 50 RBI. I know we don't care about RBIs. He's got 50 RBIs now, 73 games into the season. He's on 100 RBI pace. Plus, his OPS is 896, (laughs) okay? This has all happened in the last two weeks. And of course, he's not going to keep it up. But if he just has like a decent second half, he has completely changed the narrative about his season. And all of a sudden, if he's not selected to the All-Star game, something's wrong, (laughs) Like, he's got to go now, whether it's for the game or the home run derby or both. If you're not including Kyle Schwarber at Coors Field in a couple of weeks, something has gone horribly wrong.
0: Yeah, you know, it's so funny with this overall season numbers now because if you don't know any better, you look at the numbers, you say, well, Kyle Schwarber's having a good season. And of course, the reality is for so much of this season, he wasn't. You know, this is kind of like an Emmett Smith, Barry Sanders thing where each guy may have the same yards per carry. But Emmett does it because he literally averages four and a half yards per carry. And Sanders does it because one carry goes for 50 yards, another carry is for minus one. And it all kind of adds up to being, you know, four and a half yards per carry, that kind of a thing. That's Schwarber. He got off to a terrible start to the year. Then he got a little bit better. And we were like, all right, he's to doing better lately. Then he kind of came back down. And now he's, he's surging like few players ever surge, And his numbers for the year look great. I mean, 560 slugging on the season. That's outstanding that he's doing that. So the run continues. There's no other way to say this. And if the Nats end up contending this season, and there is still very much a viable path by which they can do that, the insertion of Kyle Schwarber into that leadoff spot, I mean, that is 100% what will be viewed as a turning point. This looks like a stroke of brilliance by Davey Martinez for all of the lineup tinkering. And I guess at some point, something had to work because everything got tried. But for all of the lineup tinkering, this looks like one of the greatest chess moves any manager has ever made. Schwarber in the leadoff spot. He has been a totally different hitter since then.
1: So if I can interpret what you're saying here, Al, if the Nationals win the NL East, you're saying Davey Martinez is the NL Manager of the Year and Kyle Schwarber is the NL MVP. Am I interpreting that correctly?
0: I think that's perfectly reasonable, right? What else could the answers be? (laughs) Absolutely,
1: yeah. All right, Dave, works for me. We've talked about this, that like, Some of it was just, let's shake it up, let's try something different, this isn't working. But there was some logic behind it. This wasn't completely out of nowhere. There was the thought of putting him up there where he's going to see more fastballs, especially in the first inning, try to jump on one and give his team a lead. So there's that. There's also the idea of having him hit in front of Turner and Soto. Look, As great as this has been, we have not seen one pitcher pitch around him in these two weeks nobody's held up four fingers and said, oh, we don't want to face that guy. And the reason is they still fear Turner and Soto behind them, and they want to avoid a big inning. So there is actually some strategy behind all this. And here's a crazy one that occurred to me watching this game. If the idea is now you want to keep him in the leadoff spot, but you'd love to get him up there with runners on base a little bit more. Isn't it time to put Victor Robles back in the nine spot again
0: instead of the eight spot? Oh, boy. Uh, I I knew I was going to push some buttons with that one. No, it's not time to do that because that cost them in a lot of different spots, I thought, and you do not want your pitcher coming up any more than the pitcher has to come up. I I understand what you're saying when you say that, but I would not do that. Honestly, if you're really trying to do this right, You could make the case you put Schwarber second and you put someone who gets on base in front of him a lot first. But I know no one wants to touch this right now because Schwarber's (laughs) killing it in that leadoff spot. You know what's so funny, too? I remember when this started, I remember talking to you about it. It was like, well, it's probably more of like a matchup thing. It's not going to be an every game thing. And Schwarber has forced this on Davey. You ain't touching me. You ain't moving me from this leadoff spot. Like, the heck with these matchups, all right? Just let me mash. And he's mashing. And you know what also is kind of interesting? And this is maybe just anecdotal. He seems to come up a lot to begin other innings. Like, if you look at what else Schwarber did on Friday night, he had a first pitch leadoff single in the top of the first, okay, beginning the first inning. He had a leadoff single in the top of the eighth. He's had other homers during the stretch that have been leadoff homers to innings that were not first innings. So, I don't know. It's just, it's working out like he's leading off a bunch of innings other than the first innings lately. So, that's kind of neat with this whole thing.
1: No, I agree. But I also, you know, I think. As much as they always try to say, oh, you know, you only lead off once a game and it doesn't really matter. No, it happens more than that in the National League. Yeah. The pitcher makes the final out a lot. And so a a leadoff hitter is probably going to lead off at least twice a game and often three times a game. So there is strategy behind that. And the idea of like, oh, well, it doesn't really matter because you only lead off in the first. And after that, you're, you know, you're whatever hitter. No, you do end up leading off innings a lot more when you're the number one hitter in the line.
0: Yeah, no, I think the truth in that, and the home run he hit on Friday night, leadoff homer in what ended up being a two-run third inning for the Nationals. So there you go, like there's an inning in which he homered leadoff style, but that was not a first inning. RBI single for Ryan Zimmerman on Friday night was nice to see that. Zim really has cooled off here lately, but does deliver the one-out full-count ribby single in that Nationals two-run third. We are seeing signs of life from Starling Castro offensively lately. I do want to highlight this, because I've been hard on the guy, and I think rightly so, but Castro's been a little bit better here lately offensively. He's had some doubles. He had himself two singles on Friday night, a one-out single in the top of the second and a leadoff single in the top of the seventh. And I wanted to ask you this. So Trey Turner had a single on Friday night, single on an 0-2 pitch actually to go with a stolen base in that two-run third, but he hit into a double play for the first two outs in the top of the first. You know, we've noted the frequency with which Juan Soto was hit into double plays this season. I said to myself when Trey did that, I said, man, it feels like Trey's hit into a lot of double plays this season. Sure enough, he has. He's now hit into eight double plays this season. He hit into 10 double plays all of the 2019 regular season and just seven double plays all of the 2018 regular season. He's obviously fast. I don't know. Is this just a quirky thing? But it's kind of odd to me. Soto's hit into a lot of double plays this year. And even Trey Turner has hit into a good number of double plays so far this year.
1: Yeah, I've had the same thought. And I've even thought this to myself when there's not runners on base and just grounds out. And I remember when he was a rookie. And if he made contact, even on a routine ground ball, I would never turn my eyes away from it. I'd never look, put the the 6-3 in the scorebook. I wanted to watch it because there was a chance he was going to beat it out. And I remember thinking like, man, this guy is may change the way we think about routine outs <laughs> in the major leagues. And slowly over time, that's not really the case anymore. He doesn't beat out a whole lot of infield singles anymore. The occasional one, but certainly any play that we would consider routine, he's always thrown out on it. The double plays are happening. And look, I'm, I'm not trying to say this as some kind of like indictment of him or of, for a lack of hustle, anything like that. I think it's just a reminder that when you're 21, 22, whatever he was when he came up and you've got all the speed in the world and you feel like you can run at 110% on every ground ball. Over time, you can't really do that anymore, especially when you're playing 162 like he is and the wear and tear gets to you. And so I think you have to make calculated decisions along the way to say, yeah, I could bust it down the line and maybe have a slim chance of beating this one out, but maybe for the sake of my body and for the sake of the whole season, I need to just kind of go through the motions, just run down the line at a normal speed. Again, not loafing it, but just at a normal speed. And I think he's learned that over time. And I think that's among the reasons why we don't see as many infield hits and maybe why we see a few of these double plays as well.
0: So you just raised something that I think is very important and that every Nationals fan should be thinking about when it comes to Trey Turner contractually. A lot of studies have been done on this. When is an athlete's prime? And a lot of us grew up thinking, well, an athlete's prime is like, you know, like 28 to 32, something like that. And no, 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 no. This has been looked at in baseball, in the NBA and other sports. Your athletic prime is more like your mid-20s. So like, you know, 24 to 27, somewhere in there. This is Trey Turner's age 28 season. He's going to be going into his 30s when he enters into whatever mega contract he inevitably is going to be getting. This is something that I think the Nats have to be thinking about with Trey Turner, that if you're going to pay him 200, maybe even $300 million, you're not getting Trey Turner at age 23. You're getting Trey Turner in his 30s. And that's not to say he's going to fall off a cliff. But if already we're starting to see some signs of the speed eroding, all right, and the speed has been such a big part of his game. Yes, he's gotten better as a hitter the last few years. So maybe you say, well, that cancels out whatever lessening of the speed is taking place. But you can't ignore these things. And It may be subtle, but something like the double play total, you know, stands out of like you just outlined it. He was uber fast early in his career. He's still plenty fast now, but he's not special fast, maybe like he used to be. At least we're not seeing it as often as we used to see. He hasn't stolen a lot of bases here lately for the Nationals. That's been kind of interesting, too. The stolen bases have kind of dipped down with him. So I just feel like that has to go into the calculus of if you're going to push across a table, 200, 300 million dollars, you don't want to pay for something that the guy used to be but isn't anymore. And I just think that needs to be remembered from a Nationals perspective when it comes to Trey Turner and this contract.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great point and that you have to remember that when it's a specifically a speed guy like him or who we think of as a speed guy, that doesn't last forever. And you do adapt as players as you get older. Now, he may be a, a great hitter throughout his 30s, especially in the power department and and a great leader and a great shortstop. That can all still be the case. But the idea of Trey Turner as we always thought, oh, he's going to steal 60, 70 bases. He's never really come close to anything like that. And it's not going to happen now at this stage of his career. You know, he may be a 30 stolen base guy at most. Now, again, that's great. It's still among the league leaders, but maybe not that just all time great base stealer, the guy who changes the way you play the game sort of thing. So I do think it, it is a valid point you're making and something for them to consider. Make sure if you are signing him that you know what you're signing him for. You're probably signing him for. Power, batting average, defense, and leadership. You're probably not signing him for speed.
0: Yeah. There's a saying when it comes to free agency that I think is so great don't pay a guy in his 30s for what he did in his 20s. And this is part of what gets teams into trouble with big money deals. And it's not to say that paying Trey Turner big money would be a mistake, but it's just something that has to be kept in mind. Well, Mark uh, shared the good news regarding Josh Bell. That is good news. MRI exam on his right side coming back clean. So we anticipate seeing him. For Game 3 of the series at the Marlins, Saturday afternoon, a 410 first pitch. Patrick Corbin versus Zach Thompson. Thompson will be making just his fourth Major League start. Corbin comes into the game having been quite good over his last two starts. A combined three runs allowed in 14 and a third innings. 14 strikeouts versus 12 hits and two walks. If Corbin makes it a third consecutive good outing, dare I say that we can start to think that maybe just maybe Corbin has been fixed. Or do we still need to see more, even if Corbin does do well on Saturday?
1: Uh, I'd probably like to see it happen one more time against a really quality lineup, which he may be facing the time after that, because I think at that point he'll be facing the Dodgers next weekend. So that would be a pretty good test for him, I would imagine. So yeah, give me one beyond that. But obviously, you would like to see him do well against the Marlins lineup. And again, just like John Lester, throw strikes make them beat you in that ballpark, make them hit it out of the park. It's going to be hard to do that. Don't help them out at all. Get ahead in the count. It seems like it should be a good matchup for him, but it only works if he throws strikes early in the count with his fastball. That lets him get to the slider. That's where he can have success.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. You he, he, he need to do more than just three straight good outings with how bad he had been, and especially if one of those outings is, is against the Marlins. And if he struggles against the Marlins, then we're right back to where we were. I mean, th- that to me is, again, one of the real disappointments about Lester's outing. It didn't happen against the Behemoth. It happened against the lowly Marlins, and Lester got shellacked. Well, I did want to, before we call it a pod, bring this up, because this was interesting, and it came up on Friday. So Cubs insider Gordon Wittenmeyer of NBC Sports Chicago on Friday reported that Max Scherzer's agent, none other than Scott Boris, said that the only way that Max will waive his full no-trade rights as a 10-5 player this season will be if he agrees on a contract extension with the team that's trading for him. 10-5 players, as many of you listening know in case you don't, players who have accrued 10 years of Major League Service time and spent the past five straight years with the same team are awarded what are called 10 and 5 rights. Under those rights, you can veto any trade. So you have essentially full, no trade rights. We knew that Max had this. Boris, though, had not come out and said this, that Max ain't waiving his 10 and 5 rights unless he gets an extension with another team. All of this may be moot because it may well end up being that the Nationals have no interest in trading Max Scherzer this season. But what did you make of old Boris coming out and putting this out there into the, uh, the public bloodstream with these comments to NBC Sports Chicago?
1: Well, I think it underscores a point that I've been thinking to myself for a while now: is that Max Scherzer doesn't want to leave. You know, yes, he wants to win, but he wants to win here. I don't think he's looking to uproot his entire life and his family. Yeah, you'd love to, you know, have a chance at winning another title somewhere, but he doesn't want to just go somewhere for two months and then be a free agent. And so, for all those who said, "Oh, well, hey, you can still trade him and then re-sign him in the winter," nah, I don't know that's what's going to happen. I don't think that is what he's looking to do. I don't think he's looking to go somewhere for just two months to pitch and then hit free agency. So I think Max Scherzer's top priority would be to stay in Washington, D.C. Hopefully the Nationals continue this and they make another run and he can do that. And I think he's agreeable to re-signing this winner for another year or two with them. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with the Nationals if they do that, even if they don't make the playoffs this year. I don't think it would be a mistake to keep him, bring him back, and have him pitching every fifth day for you as you try to reload and make another run at this down the road. He is an icon. He's going to be the first Hall of Famer to wear a Nationals cap. If you're trading him, you better get something big time in return for him, and you better not ruin that relationship that you have built with him over time. So, But I just think it underscores, like I've been saying all along, it's easy to say, oh, if the Nats are out of it, they need to trade Max Scherzer. Well, there's a lot of steps that have to happen for that trade to actually go down. Mike Rizzo has to get an offer that he deems worth it. Mark Lerner has to approve the trade. And Max Scherzer has to approve the trade because of the 10 and five rights. That's a lot of things that have to happen for that trade to go down.
0: Oh yeah, no, it was never gonna be easy. The point though, I think was if they were bad, given the state of the farm system, they had to be on board with trading Scherzer because obviously they were not on board with trading away Bryce Harper in 2018 but the way the Nats have been playing they're not going to need to do that I think too one of the things that's nice about the season Max is having is it's certainly not unreasonable to suggest he has at least another two or three good years left in him so re-signing him and maybe giving him a big AAV contract you know not a long-term deal but maybe a two or three-year big money deal kind of like what the Dodgers have done with Clayton Kershaw There's an argument for that because he can still pitch. I mean, he's been their best pitcher clearly so far this year. With the trade deadline stuff, I got a kick out of this. And if you follow the podcast on Twitter, at Nats underscore chat, you perhaps saw this today. But Mark Feinsand, MOB.com writer, he's covered uh, the New York teams for years. He was with, I think, the New York Post uh, for a while. He did this trade deadline inbox column and the headline item in the column will the Nationals be buyers this summer? So for all of the talk about the Nationals being sellers, now we get a National piece about the Nationals potentially being buyers. My, how the conversation can change, and rather quickly.
1: And I believe that Mark, who who I know well and is a good guy and a very good reporter, but I believe he was the first one to speculate that maybe they should trade Max Scherzer back in April whenever things started to go south. So yeah, I've been saying all along, let's hold off. Let's see how this plays out. Let's get to the all-star break and see where they are before we determine if they are buyers or sellers. I don't think Mike Rizzo knows if they're buyers or sellers right now. I think he hopes they're buyers, but he also knows that it could fall apart here and maybe they do need to be sellers. But he's going to let the outcome on the field dictate that he's not going to go into this with some kind of preconceived notion of what they should be until he actually sees how the team performs over the next few weeks.
0: That's a sneaky positive, by the way, about what Kyle Schwarber is doing. If the Nats start to struggle Oh no, come on. If the Nats start to struggle again, old Shorby has raised his trade value. Don't discount the importance of that over these last few weeks.
1: You are cold hearted, <laughs> Al. You are cold hearted. I would love to see you as a major league GM. What player would ever want to sign with you and oh, your team wouldn't. the way you treat players?
0: Oh, they wouldn't. I-, I would be like Brad Pitt in Moneyball. You're cut. That's it. That's you know. It's done. Let's move on. You know. it's just how it goes. Sorry,
1: pal. You wouldn't tell them in person. You'd have the manager do it while you stayed back. You wouldn't even do it in person, would
0: you? I'd be looking through the uh, the window into the room, pointing and laughing while the guy was getting cut. That's, that's 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 what I would be doing. Well, you tell us what you think. You can tweet us at nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast to natschatpodcast at gmail either in written form or via voice memo, whichever you prefer. Please, if you don't already subscribe to the podcast, consider subscribing to the podcast. This way you don't have to remember each day to download it. It'll come right to you automatically. And if you haven't already, give the podcast a five-star rating and just start write like a uh, one-sentence review. Doing those things helps out the podcast a lot. We've gotten some great download numbers lately. We really appreciate all the support. Please continue to spread the word. This is something unique. It's something special. It's something we really felt like there was an appetite for. Postgame Nationals podcast shows after every Nats game, win or lose. And unfortunately on Friday night, it was a loss. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast.
2: I can't develop personal relationships with these guys. I gotta be able to trade them, send them down, sometimes cut them, which is something you should learn to do, by the way.
0: I would never have to cut a player unless you, oh come on. Come on what? Let's practice.